Hello and welcome to All Indians Matter. I am Ashraf Engineer. The growing awareness about inclusive policy making spans various spheres, economics, social and everything in between. While we've had a lot of discussion about things like gender budgeting and women-centric social programs, very few in India have even thought about gender and foreign policy. At the international level, however, several countries are gender mainstreaming their foreign policy, beginning with Sweden's adoption of a feminist foreign policy or FFP in 2014. I recently came across a fascinating paper called Understanding the Feminist Foreign Policy, a view from India and reached out to the Kubernetes initiative that had released it. All Indians matter. I am very pleased to have on the show Priyanka Bhide, co-founder and director of the Kubernetes Initiative, an independent female-led geopolitical think tank and advisory firm based in Mumbai. Kubernetes is working to mainstream issues that need greater intellectual capacity and focus. Since 2019, Priyanka has co-led Kubernetes flagship program on gender and foreign policy. Priyanka comes from a strategy and communication background with over a decade of experience with the private and non-profit sectors. Welcome Priyanka. Hi Ashraf, happy to be here. Priyanka the report makes the point that women are almost always disproportionately affected by any major global problem could you explain that and maybe give an example of it sure so essentially the world that we live in is designed uh, by men and women have always played a, a supporting cast in it right so these are our traditional structures that have been holding our world together for ages and as a result of that anything that happens uh, anywhere in the world uh, impacts um, women uh, more but also the marginalized so when we talk about uh, inclusivity and gender we're actually taking that broader lens because depending on who you are and where you are you would be impacted more and the example here uh, the biggest one is of course covid right when covid hit the women uh, there were a larger section of women that lost their jobs because the way the jobs are structured are also very masculine right so most of the women work in these unorganized uh, sectors i mean the lower income women would work in unorganized sectors where they were house help and they th- those kind of women lost their jobs but also then in the more organized uh, spaces the the responsibility of some of the household work fell um, on them and so then when the decision had to be made it was usually uh the woman who gave up the job also because the way that salaries are structured for the same position men are often paid far more than women and the same i mean you take this away from the urban setting you take it to a rural setting in agriculture as as well uh, a large part of the agrarian workforce is actually women but women that are uneducated and do not have land rights Uh, so when there's any kind of uh, catastrophe right you call it i mean crops failing because of uh, rain unseasonal rain and climate change it is those women that are impacted the most or if something happens where uh, where somebody has to go out of the village to seek employment it's always the men that go out and the women that are left behind and uh, land rights are also very unequally distributed although by law women are allowed to inherit Uh, in practice what that means is very different uh, so this is in a nutshell i couldn't agree with you more in fact one of the lasting impacts of the loss of jobs for women after covid is that we still haven't gone back to pre covid women's uh, participation in the labor force i mean the numbers are dismal i don't have them ready at this point but there's been enough media coverage about it. 
but priyanka in this context everything that you just said why is it important to link gender to foreign policy so it's important to link gender and inclusivity to any policy we only began with foreign policy because uh, when we got into this conversation of feminist foreign policy it was something uh, that was being looked at in the foreign policy area uh, and in in the global north of course and when we joined this conversation as an indian organization nobody was bringing in the perspective of the global south right so uh, these countries were looking at uh, inclusivity in very binary forms so one of the things uh, we try to do is to bring about this understanding of uh, what it means from from our part of the world right and i mean we began with foreign policy also because that's where india has done a lot of work in terms of gender mainstreaming in in the way that we've done our development partnerships uh, we've had gender considerations uh, although perhaps not by design but they are there if you see our engagements with other countries as well they're very human rights centered uh, and so we one we we uh, connected into this conversation to say that it is not something that should be discussed only in the west uh, we can we are very well equipped to have this discussion and contribute to it as well um and then to start a conversation in india right where uh, initially there was some amount of uh, skepticism as to um what is the word feminist is so western it doesn't translate in uh, to the indian context does it make sense but then we did a lot of decoding uh, and conversations uh, to understand that there was already a ground upon which we could build further the hope is also that something that might start with foreign policy will then eventually percolate to all of our other policies as it often does right even the climate conversation started at a very international stage but we see now how it's impacting uh, everyone right at all levels uh, so that is the reasoning behind it and the story as well right you know in india there has been little or no debate about gender focused foreign policy you see that changing at all in recent times um i would say i mean so one thing that we've done very consciously is to use the term inclusive and we've not come to it um uh, in a light manner right we we did a lot of consultations um closed door consultations uh, to understand what terminology makes sense for our country and so we've used the word inclusion and you see that being used a lot uh, in you know uh, the kind of government language in the g20 language the word inclusion is coming about a lot we also see this change and this is not uh, just uh, i would not uh, let cuba 9 take all the credit of course there are there are several organizations around it but this is a shift that we've seen from 2018-19 when we joined into the conversation where even the 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 government uh, perspective on it right they are saying we we moved from women's development to women led development so these are subtle shifts which are very important when you uh, when you see when you measure this kind of impact because this kind of impact you cannot measure very easily in numbers it's anecdotal you can also not connect it very uh, in a very concrete manner to a particular organization or a particular person right but these are the shifts that we have definitely seen and also it plays out uh, in the long run right it's not something immediate 
Exactly. It takes time. I mean, that's why they call it generation equality, right? We don't expect to to make it there in one generation. It's going to take several generations to uh, get that kind of uh, equality that we aspire for. Yeah, that's why it's important to start now. <laughs> uh, Priyanka, what would a feminist foreign policy or FFP look like in the Indian context? Very difficult question. But... Um, what we have tried to i mean the way we've tried to approach it is that see it should be something that uh, we chart out right that's the beauty of the concept actually the feminist foreign policy is an approach and every country that has adopted it or is thinking about it or is even discussing it in the way that we are right in the spaces of civil society and think tanks um, they're looking at how where they could begin so given that i think in india we have a lot of um, laws uh, and regulations that are in in a sense neutral they're gender neutral right but if you dig more deeply they are gender blind and what i mean by that they do not take into account um, the differentiated impact that a policy might have on men versus women on marginalized versus uh, you know the the wealthy or even within one economic strata women in different states face uh, different challenges and obstacles, right? Um, so I think for us to get to a point where we could announce such a policy, uh, we'd have to do some of that work like we see Mexico has done, right? Mexico and India has a very similar uh, situation and um, they have they have announced a feminist foreign policy as a aspirational step almost, right? Where they did some amount of work in terms of their uh, foreign policy makeup and they they had a higher number of women ambassadors and they did some amount of groundwork and then they have announced this policy which has also received some amount of criticism but they're taking it as a way to kind of improve uh, conditions for them as well. I feel that would be the way for India to do it, right? To take a few small steps uh, while we make systemic changes internally uh, to to see how we can measure and then change the impact of our policies uh, at various levels. So what are these steps, uh, these small steps that India needs to take to make it happen? Very fundamentally, I think we need to, uh, the, we need to analyze uh, a lot of what exists, right? Because we are so caught up in, okay, this, uh, this, this policy is gender neutral. Uh, nobody is is looking into that kind of data, this de gender disaggregated data. Because when we measure, then we can actually see what the differences are, and then we can make those changes and tweaks uh, to kind of overcome those barriers. So at some level, there is need for a lot more research and analysis. We still look to women's, um, I mean, you know, I mean, to to anything gender related as women's issues, right? That women are working on or we are working on to improve the lives of women. We still have this very development focused lens, which is important. I'm not saying it's not important, uh, but I think we need to uh, shift that, uh, you know, to if we really want to go towards this women-led development, what does that actually mean? You know, what will it take? Um, right now, the way our society is structured also it's, it's meant that, okay, we have these rules and then the women have to make all sorts of sacrifices uh, because they have these doors open and then come to that level. But I think the generation before me has worked very hard uh, to show that we are quite capable. 
so now we need to move towards a uh, towards a place where we are changing the rules a bit right and and making the rules as well a bit equal as well so let's get a little granular if that were to happen if india were to have a feminist foreign policy in place what would be the benefits we would see on the ground whether i mean we don't realize it often because we don't talk about foreign policy in whatever a regular circles perhaps but everything that happens within foreign policy now impacts us all right regardless of where we are uh we may not have too much control over it because it's still a very top down approach uh, that we have in india um different countries have different approaches but we have a we have this top down approach but what happens there affects us right so how because we are now such a global uh interconnected world uh if you see again the covid example right our relationships with other countries determine our ability to get access right our relationships on trade will determine the kind of uh, taxation impacts that businesses would have the kind of openings that businesses would have uh, to you know to to trade and right now the trading systems are also uh, very very male dominated systems right our our country which is heavily dependent on uh, msmes the msme sector is very heavily male dominated there are very few women even in the even if you see in the startup sector that's coming up there are very few women in that sector um so if you take this feminist gender lens um i would imagine the policies would change in such a way that they would open more doors they sh- they would make uh they would create greater ease of access for not only women but i mean the idea is it should not be only for women it should it should be for uh, you know anyone in this marginalized group of people i can give you a more concrete example if you want yes please yes please <laughs> i mean it's a it's a really silly example but for if you see the cost uh, and this is i i i cannot take the credit for it somebody brought to my notice but if you see the cost of a uh, a razor right a razor blade for men uh, of a company i've looked this up is 25 rupees but for women something that's pink this is a disposable razor it's 69 rupees right for the color what is it for but very often um, this tax tax shift is not only uh, detrimental for the for the consumer but also as a producer because women will often be in these spaces where they're 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 producing uh, you know goods that are catered toward women because again the jobs are there's a there's the jobs are masculine and feminine still right there are there's that distinction the, the way we are educated also has a lot of uh, gender bias uh, without we realizing it and it's something i'm realizing every single day i mean i'm still learning yeah absolutely i i also wanted to underscore something that your report talks about that many of those in charge close their minds the moment you use, use the word feminist however it's important to understand that a feminist foreign policy is about women having a voice and agenda and equal representation and i don't think the people in charge can or should argue with that what's your view i absolutely agree we shouldn't argue but i think the reason we hear that kind of reaction is uh, one at one level it's it's a very cultural reaction right because the because the word feminist it it is so i mean it, you will not believe the kind of emotion i've seen <laughs> when we put that word out the other is because um, till people start actually talking about it and get involved in the conversation 
the reaction is very defensive because we do have the laws that are equal, right? So the reaction is very, but you have, you like, we you have the access, you have that, what more do you need? <laughs> you know, so that's another reaction. So it takes time to have a conversation and say that, no, we, we agree, like we, we agree it exists, but what more can we do and what more can we do together? Um, and how do we, uh, you know, how do we work together? Uh, so that is the shift that we are trying to bring about as well, right? And which is why, uh, for now, uh, we we are using in the Indian context as well, inclusive and not feminist, because we think there's great value in the approach and the the kind of things that have that other countries have even done with it. Um, and if if it's if it's a matter of using a different word, it's it's fine so long as the 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 fundamental principles can be carried forward somehow. So, uh, since you mentioned other countries, uh, which countries are leading the FFP charge, and how have they benefited? So the conversation started with Sweden. Sweden was the first country in 2014 to announce a feminist foreign policy. Uh, They have recently moved away from the word feminist. But if you see the way that they have uh, structured it, a lot of the a lot of their commitments and structures are in place. Right. So in the in the West, it's been Sweden, Canada, France, um, Germany that have uh, that have that first were the first ones there. But each country, if you observe, has taken a different route. So Canada has uh, built on its feminist uh, um, assistance, international assistance policy. Right? They already had some amount of a gender component into it. Uh, they started from there. They now have uh, free trade ag- agreements with, uh, f- with countries which have a gender chapter. So the Canada-Chile gender agreement, uh, free trade agreement has a gender chapter in it. Right? Uh, Germany started it within their federal foreign office. So they, again, did not use the word feminist. They uh, did gender mainstreaming within their federal foreign office and then only recently last year announced a feminist foreign policy and then rules around it. Um, France uh, started with feminist diplomacy. Mexico was the first country from the global south to announce, uh, make such an announcement, and we've already covered that, so I won't repeat it. Then there are some countries that have made an intent to have a feminist foreign policy so chile and libya amongst those and others that while they don't don't have a they've not spelled out a gender mainstreaming policy or feminist foreign policy uh, they if you observe what they've done within their uh, foreign policy mechanisms there's considerable evidence of gender mainstreaming so that's where we see india could fall in and then build on uh, and the others in that space then would be Australia, Argentina, and there are several other countries that do this in various ways, either through their uh, development assistance uh, or, you know, those kind of partnerships. That's where they have begun. So tell us about the evolution of FFP. When did the idea first come about? How, what is the journey it has traveled so far? It's a journey that is still on. So... Uh, I think it's a uh, it's it's still which is why we find it so exciting, right? Because typically we've always had these concepts that began, uh, you know, outside in the West that have come to India. Uh, but this is actually a chance for us to shape what such a concept would mean. Uh, so in 2014, when uh, when Sweden announced this uh, feminist foreign policy and Margot Wallström. Uh, was the the person behind it, right? Pushing it forward. Um, they they a lot of their work was on the women, peace, and security agenda, right? So they looked at it from a very uh, from the from the peacemaking point of view. How do you get more women 
uh, to decision-making tables uh, in negotiating tables for peace agreements uh, and how then the outcomes could be better. And she looked at these three R's, right? Um, rights, representation, and uh, resources, right? So you don't only give representation as a normal thing, but you also uh, you ensure that it, it, it comes with agencies so the women, the people have rights to actually make decisions. Uh, and then the resources to to support uh, their work, right? So these are the three main things that she spoke about. But then as that was a very, very, it was, it was based on their experience and their path. But each country has then, as I said earlier as well, has taken their own path and is still discovering. I mean, even um, a country like Canada is still working with, uh, with the kind of feedback and the criticisms that they, they receive to to evolve uh, this concept, right? So is Germany. I mean, Germany is do, doing it uh, in a very structured manner, which is, I think, very typical for Germany, right? And uh, uh, so, I mean, it, it's it's still evolving. And so this is the space for us uh, to also be in. We should be talking about this and there should be more uh, organizations talking about this in India as well. So I'm glad you mentioned the three R's because I wanted, uh, I, I actually want you to expand on that a little bit. Now, your report says, and I quote, it is time we went beyond piecemeal efforts to create an environment that fosters diversity in thought and action with policy outputs that strategically consider the impact on women and the marginalized. For this, we must go beyond the original three R's of rights, resources and responsibility and include components of research, reporting, reach and resources in a stop quote. Could you explain that? The fundamental difference, right, between uh, what can be achieved in the three R's in a Sweden, uh, which cannot be achieved in India, uh, is that uh, it's very easy uh, for not only India, for any country to kind of replicate the 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 representation, right? And we've seen that in at the at the domestic level uh, through the panchayat. Uh, uh, Raj, we we had the quota system that exists, and uh, you know the leaders that came in. It's taken several years for them to be trained to actually, from the point where they were elected as the representatives, to uh, to be able to understand how to use that position and power to uh, lead and govern. And still, there are there are uh, several places I know where it's still the, the woman is in power, but perhaps it's the her husband or somebody uh, within the family who's actually making the decision, right? So the similar situation should not occur again. To prevent that, we feel we should go in a more measured manner. So instead of having these large targets of just X uh, number of women that are there, which is also, a, I mean, a good way to do it, it needs to be accompanied by uh, sufficient research to show where it needs to happen. There's some amount of research to show that, in, for example, uh, in, in the diplomatic core, traditionally women were given a certain type of soft role. They would be given the soft power roles and not the hard security roles. That is something that's changing. But the, the data is still kind of not um, very concrete. It's not, there's, it's, there's no... Uh, baseline data for a lot of these things for us to build upon. So in that sense, we need to do a lot more research on not only understanding where the women are, but also understanding then where they fall out, right? So we looked at the incoming batch of the IFS uh, who would have joined services last year and 
there's a remarkably high number of women in that batch. Uh, there was a class photo that we counted people off, and there were more than 44% um, of women in that in that picture. But clearly, uh, somewhere the women are lost, right? And the same thing we see in, in our um, in our corporate sector as well, right? We have a lot of women graduates, a lot of women scientists also graduating, but then they do not. They somewhere along the line we lose them. So why do we lose them, right? Um, we need a lot more research going into understanding why we lose them, and then what kind of policy change would be required uh, to prevent that. Now we've established, of course, that India has a long way to go when it comes to a feminist foreign policy. We need to get the conversation started. In fact, more than anything else, can India ever hope to lead that conversation? I think we can if you know we are able to. Uh, to, I mean, in some ways, uh, Cooper 9 has made a small start. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are outside of the government. So we need a little bit more official push. So, I, I mean, I think if somebody uh, takes this forward, it's quite possible that we could lead the conversation for what it means from our perspective, right? Because uh, if you just go by numbers, uh, it's a very disheartening feeling. Every time you see these... Uh, you know, the, the women empowerment numbers or gender gap numbers, um, they are very disheartening. And But rather than coming from a place of shame, I think if we could c- come from a place of confidence to own it and say that, yes, this exists because of several historical and cultural regions, and this is how we're going to come out of it, um, I think it would put us in a position of power. And, and I think that's the that's the way we should be approaching it. And we could be leading the conversation here. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you actually consulted with or spoken to anybody in government about this? Yes. So we have circulated our report uh, very widely. Uh, Our original report on uh, inclusive foreign policy was um, we we did it in in partnership with the India office of Konrad Adna Shiftong. And uh, we have uh, circulated that within the MEA, the policy planning unit and even within uh, the way we've gone about our research uh, has included a lot of consultations with former ambassadors um, in our closed door conversations. Also, we have invited um, uh, people from the government, you know, whenever possible. So in that sense, we have created the awareness um, about it. Um, and um, we also came out with a book of essays uh, together with the Asia Foundation, where we had other organizations that are doing remarkable work on various areas of for, of policy, like trade and climate. Um, those experts weigh in and take a gender lens. That report has also been uh, widely circulated. Um, so um, that's the way to do it, I think, in India, because it's difficult to make uh, a very tangible uh, connection, as I have told you. Uh, but uh, aware, we have created as much awareness as we possibly could. So tell, tell us more about the Kubernetes initiative and uh, how is it participating in the push for an FFP? So we are doing it in two ways. One is we are contributing to the global conversation through the think tank spaces, right? So we are part of the Feminist Foreign Policy Collaborative, which goes across geographies, we also uh, consult regularly with organizations um, in in Australia and uh, um, 
uh, in Canada, all around the world that are talking about this issue, uh, right? We, I recently even took part in a, a webinar on uh, where uh, they've, uh, International Feminista has re released a report of critiquing the feminist, the Mexico's feminist foreign policy. Uh, so we engage in, in these kind of dialogues that are happening uh, outside of India to bring in the Indian perspective. But at the same time, we also push dialogue within India to develop the Indian perspective better. Uh, because while we understand the international context quite well and the foreign policy at the core of it, uh, we are not trained feminist IR scholars. And that there's a whole, uh, you know, in, in, in the theory of IR, uh, there are people with PhDs in it. So our effort is also to connect some of that theoretical perspective, which is developing in India and, uh, you know, growing the number of IR programs in the country are also growing. So we have a lot of that theoretical thought coming out with the policy and practice uh, sections uh, of our of our country as well. So that's something that we're doing internally. And then uh, we feed in a lot of that information externally as well. Right, and IR is international relations. I just wanted to let our uh, uh, listeners know that. Right, so uh, Priyanka, uh, here's a question I ask all my guests at the end of the show. Why do you do this work? Why do I do this work? It's normally the toughest question, as guests tell me. But <laughs> uh, it is very tough. I do it for several reasons. I mean, uh, one of the reasons, surprisingly, I mean, the reason... I started Kuber9 Initiative along with Ambika, uh, and we both started for different reasons, right? Uh, my co-founder, Ambika Vishwanath, um, has been working in water security for a long time, and she wanted to um, kind of be in Mumbai, but work in a think tank space, which is very Delhi-focused. Um, and I wanted to continue working in that space, but also wanted some amount of flexibility because of various uh, fa family constraints. So in that sense, in, in terms of like organizational structure, we wanted to create something that gives people flexibility to live lives alongside. Uh, and in that, and, and, and so the feminist foreign policy conversation just fits in so well, right, with what we are trying to do, because um, this is a conversation where people are trying to change the rules, the rules that have not uh, been helpful for our planet, for the earth, for countries, the way we've been doing things, if we go along that road, we are going to kill our planet before an asteroid hits it. So in that sense, so the, it was a great, uh, it's a great place for me to be in because it, it kind of helps me bring uh, the, the kind of emotional place that I'm in in my life to my work and combine the two. It's, it's great. And maybe I'm a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I think aren't we all, isn't it? That's the only way to get anything done. But uh, Priyanka, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and telling us why India needs a feminist foreign policy. Thank you, Ashraf. Um, if you would like to know more about us, uh, we have a very active Twitter account. Thanks to my wonderful colleague, Aditi Mukund. It's at Kuber9. Uh, so you can follow everything that we do over there. And of course, we have a website. But nowadays, people find it easier to follow Twitter. So wherever you find it helpful. We are also on LinkedIn. Thank you all for listening. Please visit allindiansmatter.in that's A-L-L-I-N-D-I-A-N-S-M-A-T-T-E-R dot I-N for more columns and audio podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter 
at Ashraf Engineer. That's A S H R A F E N G I N W E R and All Indians Count. That's A W L I N D I A N S C O U N T. Search for the All Indians Matter page on Facebook. On Instagram, the handle is All Indians Matter. Email me at editor at All Indians Matter dot in. Catch you again soon. <laughs>